0: 2021 is a historic year for Greece, the Greeks who live in Greece and for those in the diaspora. I would not exclude the global Greeks, those who feel Greeks and follow the Greek way of life. In 2021, we commemorate the bicentennial celebration since the outbreak of the Greek revolution of 1821 and the war of independence against the Ottoman Empire. We take this opportunity not only to recognize the struggles and sacrifices of our people, as we do annually on the 25th of March, but also to think the present-day position of our country and its future. To do that comprehensively, we look in the past, the history, as our compass of learning from it. This episode comes after discussing with Marios about his latest publication, which is translated in English from Greek book about his great-grandfather Panayotis Koutzoukos journal History Traditions and Legends of Koroni a journal based on oral sources from Mario's great-great-grandparents for the 1821 uprising in Peloponnese as Mario's great-grandparent was born in 1878 the journal's material was saved as notebooks Unfortunately, his collection of books and journals that created a library and donated to his native village, school, were burned during the German occupation by communist resistance fighters who believed that the library contained many reactionary books. Today, we will be discussing not only widely known, but also less mentioned by the general public aspects of the 1821 War of Independence. Welcome again, Marius. I hope you're very well.
1: Uh, Nice to see you again, and it's a pleasure to be back here, and I'm doing fine.
0: So, many non-Greek and few Greek historians attribute the War of Independence to the Ottoman authority tax collection that led to seeing the Ottomans as oppressors. Would they be omitting in such an analysis the Filikia Teria, the Society of Friends, which initiated the War of Independence and its founding principles?
1: Uh, That's a very good question and uh, a very astute remark, if you will. But uh, I think it does have merits on the one hand. I mean, all revolutions uh, do stem from, uh, let's say, initially from uh, discontentment with the fiscal policy of the ruler. On the other hand, we have to keep in mind that the uh, Greek War of Independence uh, of 1821 was not just a revolt against our ruler, but it was also a national business. It was a national cause. So, uh, when you mentioned the Philiki Eteria, the Society of Friends, um, let's explain this a little bit, let's unpack this. The Society of Friends was um, a secret society that was founded by the expatriate Greeks that lived in the uh, colonies of the Danube in the greater Balkan area. And although it was, let's say, a Masonic in structure, in the sense Uh, that it was uh, supported by secret handshakes, secret signs, secret communications. That was quite a thing back in uh, in the uh, early 19th century. Uh, It did have a very strong and uh, concise um, goal to liberate Greece from uh, the Ottoman regime and the Ottoman Empire. This wish for liberation for the Greeks had been a, a very steady motif, a very persistent desire ever since the fall of Constantinople in 1453. So it wasn't something new, something that was born out of, uh, let's say, economical oppression by the Ottomans. Although that was a thing happening, but you know, after 400 years of of slavery, you would uh, agree. I think that uh, all the um, the populations, uh, the diverse populations living in the Ottoman Empire, would have gotten a little bit used to the whole situation just as we today are used to uh let's say hard tax conditions and all that so i think indeed that uh, behind the um, the uprising uh, the revolutionary war of 1821 there was definitely the national element and the the plan to pretty much bring into fruition the uh, the desire of freedom that had been latent in all the greek people since 1453
0: It is very true to say that at the start of the Filiki Eteria, uh, which was between 1814 and 1816, only roughly 20 members were included in that secret society. And then, incrementally since 1817, the society initiated members from the diaspora in Russia and other Danubian principalities of Moldavia and Wallachia. Closer to 1821, more and more members of the War of Independence, as we read them in historical books, were included in that uh, society. You also mentioned as a landmark for the War of Independence, something that was always remembered by Greeks during the Ottoman Empire was the fall of Constantinople. Many might ask why did it take approximately 400 years for the War of Independence if we consider that the Ottoman occupation started primarily after the fall of Constantinople in 1453?
1: That's actually a good question because we have to ask ourselves when exactly was Greece taken over and what do we mean by Greece? As a starting point, if we use the Fall of Constantinople in 1453, that's uh, the pivotal point, the changing point when the Roman Empire actually falls and it is succeeded by the Ottoman Empire. And uh, let's keep in mind that the Ottoman Empire pretty much adopted and duplicated all the inner workings of uh, the Roman Empire. Sultan Mehmed II, who took Constantinople, actually uh, really wanted, uh, had the desire to be recognized as the king of Romans. And protector of Christians, as were some of his titles, although the rest of the Christian princes and kings in Europe never actually conceded to him that title, and that was a failure of Mohammed. Now, after the fall of Constantinople, the Ottoman forces began slowly and incrementally invading what we today called Greece, this geographical area of Epirus and the Peloponnese and the islands, but not all areas were occupied at the same time or, you know, in an instant. For instance, um, the resistance in the Peloponnese in what later on in uh, the 19th century, in the 1821 revolution, became the heart of the war of independence. Back in the 15th century, 1453, uh, was the first area to maintain a resistance up until the 1490s. One of the basic leaders of this struggle for independence against the advancing Ottoman Turks was uh, Krokodilos Kladas, a despot of Moreas. He was basically a a war band leader, a local lord. He kept this resistance going uh, without capitulating to Mehmed II up until uh, 1490, when he was eventually captured by the Turks and killed in a rather unpleasant way. Some sources say that uh, he was dismembered, others that he was skinned alive and all that. But and the point of the whole story is that many local lords, Byzantine lords, Roman lords, did keep up this resistance. And many of these, when uh, they actually had to retreat or succumb to the Ottoman invasion, they found their way, they left for Europe. One of the basic captains of Cladas was uh, Theodorus Buas, the famous Stradioti, the famous uh, mercenary Greek knight who later on fought in the Battle of Dover and uh, received many titles of nobility. So all these um, let's say professional soldiers or knights who feudal knights who maintained and defended their little, lot of land in Greece and their little area in Greece. As they gradually succumbed uh, to the uh, Ottoman expansion, they left for Europe where they kept on trying to persuade the European Christian princes uh, to mount a crusade against the Ottoman Turks. Of course, European politics and the economical situation was not favorable to such a big campaign. Uh, So that never actually happened. That's, That's why it took such a long time in order to find the right moment in history, let's say. And we'll talk about that later on, why 1821 was the right moment in history for an uprising to take place. But Throughout the Balkans and throughout Europe, you have a greater diaspora of uh, Greek mercenaries in Venice, in France, in England, even in the Balkans, where uh, opposition against the Ottoman invasion is very local. It's not widespread, and the idea of a nation is not ex- is not existing in uh, the 15th century. So it's more of a feudal system, and each lord is maintaining the resistance in his own little area, and these areas. Uh, slowly succumb to Turkish occupation, although uh, there were areas in Greece, in Mani for instance, that were never uh, actually occupied by the Turks. Uh, They did have a truce with the Turks and they remained autonomous. But we should keep in mind that it was a gradual and incremental process.
0: As Greeks, we always call the Byzantine Empire as the East Roman Empire, but even in Western history today, We see that they mention and they write the East Roman Empire as Byzantine Empire. They do not consider it to be a Roman Empire, even though all the Byzantine emperors were called Roman emperors. Even the Ottoman emperors wanted to be called Roman emperors at the same time as Ottoman emperors. It is very important of the perception of uh, terms we use today, because such terms did not exist 400 or 600 years ago, like that of a nation. We know very well that the word nationality and being a Greek had any meaning at all. It was actually forbidden to be called a Greek during the Byzantine Empire, So even those lords of the Peloponnese might not have identified themselves as Greeks, as we mean a Greek today, they would primarily consider themselves to be a continuation of the Byzantine Empire. Now, apart from all those initial resistance against the Ottoman Empire, there was a little bit of a gap in terms of uprisings until we reach a major one, which was the Orlov revolt in 1770. First of all, why is it called the Orlov revolt? Because the name does not bring a Greek name, right? And why haven't earlier uprisings as that of the Orlov revolt have not been successful?
1: Well, uh, let's begin with uh, the the, uh, smaller revolts in the um, in-between time period, because you know not. History records the big records the big and important revolutions. Of course, there are the uh, micro revolutions or micro resistances, uh, where throughout the uh, area, the geographical area of Greece, you have um, the klephtes, uh, the so-called brigands, if you will, you can translate to that, who are semi-autonomous men at arms who actually. At uh, regular intervals, they defy the Ottoman authorities, they steal from the Ottoman authorities, and they maintain a semi-free status by living outside the law. Of course, as you can imagine, uh, such acts of micro-resistance or micro-revolution, if you will, uh, were not um, did not have a long duration in time. They were not sustainable over a long period of time. And again, you have uh, the micro-resistance of individuals, villages or people who actually try to evade taxation that is again a form of resistance and a form of revolution but this leads us up uh, to uh, the 1770 Orlov Revolt, which name, of course, is Russian. It refers to the uh, Orlov brothers, um, Alexei and Theodor Orlov, of, uh, the, uh, who were admirals of the Imperial Russian Navy. And within the context of the uh, Russian-Turkish War of the 18th century, the, the Russian Armada arrived in Greece. To fight the Turks. I mean, it was a war between the Russians and the Turks. But the arrival of the Orlov brothers and uh, the Russian the Imperial Russian Armada in Greece did spark into the in the Greeks uh, a certain hope and a certain zeal for revolution. They thought that this is the time. Now we have the Russians on our side. Um, All these uh, obscure prophecies about a race of blond foreigners who will liberate us uh, came into play. So, a lot of Greeks, especially the Peloponnese, but later on in Crete, did um, take up arms. Now, uh, the Orlov Revolt was, uh, as it was called, it was actually a failed campaign of the Russians in Greece... um, the Orlovs uh, did uh, lay siege on Koroni and Methoni, the most important fortress port cities of the Peloponnese, they did not manage to actually um, break the Turkish resistance and they were overwhelmed. And this whole uh, thing resulted into, let's say, a military fiasco uh, because the the Russians and the Greeks were defeated. The Russians uh, returned back to their homeland. That's also one of the things uh, my great-grandfather records in his book, that um, the Russian forces uh, were defeated and they retreated back to Russia. Many Greeks went with those Russians and they settled in various ports throughout the Black Sea or uh, went back to Odessa or uh, any other place in the uh, Russian Empire, whilst the Greeks who remained behind were mercilessly slaughtered uh, by the Ottoman Turks as an act of retribution for their attempt. However, uh, the Orlov Revolt was very important because it showed for the first time that uh, a large-scale coalition between Greeks and foreign allies could actually make a dent in the uh, seemingly uh, mighty Ottoman Empire. So it was very important in that sense it it kind of sparked uh, the flame of revolution and the idea that uh, a great force aided by foreign powers can actually make it if it had you know better uh, organization
0: i have been joking that why other uprisings had not been successful by mentioning that two Pondi Greeks had to be involved for the successful initiation and end of the war of independence, referring to the Ypsilandis brothers, Alexandros and Dimitrios Ypsilandis. Greeks suffered under the Ottoman rule. The global audience might not have heard of the war of independence of the Greeks or even about the Janissaries, mass child abduction, the lack of freedom of religion and civil rights, but can we base our current perception of freedom of religion and civil rights of our times as a comparison to what did not exist then or how people could perceive similar notions?
1: That's true. That's true. I mean, when we're examining a historical period, it is always a a mistake to impose our modern notions on a Past era, that that really is a bad way to go about it. Although we can rely on primary sources from the time. For instance, you mentioned uh, mass child abductions. That was actually something that was a a method of the Ottoman Empire in order to create conscripts because uh, they needed to replenish their armies, they needed New soldiers and vassal territories who were all, who were already paying taxes and most often than not hated the Turks with her, uh, let's say with a passion uh, because they obs- the um, uh, saw them as the oppressor and the tyrant they had no willingness to actually. Uh, Participate in the army as mercenaries. So, what the Ottoman Empire did was abduct the entire village's worth of children, have these t- uh, children uh, brought up and trained in uh, the military um, tactics of the time so as to serve later on as janissaries in the Ottoman army. So, this thing, based on, um, let's say, traditional songs or accounts of the uh, really something that was painful for the people who suffered from that. Uh, so, that was quite a um, uh, quite, let's say, a grudge that the uh, subjugated peoples held against the Ottomans. And I think it is uh, Vizinos, the um, classical Greek author who uh, records that uh, you know his grandfather grew up until he was 10 years old dressed as a girl, so as he wouldn't be taken by the Turks. Uh, so you see, again, even in literature, we have this um, memory recorded of the is not wanting to part with their children in such a violent way. Of course, we have to keep in mind that the Ottoman Empire was a multicultural empire. Uh, it wasn't just Turks. Although the um, the term Turk and the term Greek at that time Greek meant most Christian Orthodox in that sense. So an Albanian could also be called a Greek in the sense that they were Christian Orthodox. And a Turk could be also a Greek who actually was Muslim. So uh, the uh, the terms Greek and Turk had mostly religious connotations. In that sense Uh, In the Ottoman Empire, you had a lot of the armies who were uh, comprised of uh, Armenians, uh, Greeks, Egyptians, Arabs, and they could all be termed as Turks if they were Muslim or as Greeks if uh, they were uh, Christian. Although uh, there is, I think, um, a certain Pasa who writes to General Karaiskakis and he actually makes a claim that all of my armies are Christians. So, our Greeks, so let's let's be allies. Let's, you know, put your freedom fighters uh, in my service and we can all work this out, says the Turkish Pasa to General karaiskakis So in that sense, yeah, we have to keep in mind always the... Um, multinational nature of the Ottoman Empire and how quickly and how often uh, this tide shifted. Because sometimes it was uh, Greeks fighting an Ottoman force that rebelled against their, um, the Ottoman ruler, the Pasa or the Bey or the Aga, and they turned against their own to support the Greek cause and all that. So that was a serious problem for the uh, Ottoman Empire, and that's why it responded with such extreme measures such as uh, child abductions and indoctrination nation of children so as to create, let's say, uh, a national identity, or at least devoted zealous citizens. I mean, all these, uh, all these brutal methods stemmed from the fact that um, the Ottomans had not the ab- did not have a good ability of integrating the populations within their empire to their side, let's say, not making them you know, part of the machine so easily.
0: Well, maybe that was not a notion that even existed in uh, the governance, in any type of governance of that time, because I don't think even in Europe there was any sense of integration of other populations. So I don't think it was just the Ottoman Empire. I think it was something characteristic of those times. We feel and we officially say that we are Hellenes, a term that refers to the ancient Greeks. We are very connected to our history because we have a very recent history of independence. Also, our cultural heritage is important to us. Most importantly, the Parthenon sculptures were stolen by Lord Elgin. And I personally find it as the epitome uh, of individual antiquarians binging the national heritage of Greeks, in an occupied by Ottomans land. But was Lord Elgin the only one?
1: Now, you also touched upon a very interesting subject, uh, Lord Elwin and uh, the Parthenon sculptures and all that. Again, uh, to keep in mind, we have to take into account the uh, historical context of the period. So if we're talking about the 19th century, archaeology in the sense that it exists today was not a thing it did not exist and nor was uh, scientific ethics again in the same sense archaeology at that time was carried out by individual antiquarians uh, who basically traveled the world and when they saw something they pretty much uh, you know bought it, if they could. Now, in the case of Lord Elwin, Lord Elwin actually was, um, uh, let's say, uh, an enthusiast and a historian of his time, the closest thing one could have at that time for an archaeologist, and Greece was pretty much his own personal Disneyland, in a sense. I mean, Greece was an uncharted territory, of course, no excavations whatsoever had ever been made, and every French, English, or German antiquarian Aquarian with a passion and a classical education, would travel around the mystical and mystifying Orient, starting with Greece, and pick up what he could from souvenirs on his day. Lord Elwin actually uh, paid from his own pocket to uh, despoil uh, the Parthenon and the rest of Greece, and Fun little story, Um, the Parthenon sculptures, uh, he initially donated them to the British Museum, but the British Museum didn't want them because it considered them of very low artistic value which is true because the um, if you look closely in the Parthenon sculptures some of the riders uh, there are depictions of riders on horses and these riders are almost as big as their horses so the proportions are all wrong uh that is because these sculptures were made to be looked at from the ground up uh so the proportions would be totally different if you were looking and from from the ground and looking up that's that's a whole um Sort of thing. But yeah, Lord Elgin had his own troubles. So he paid a lot of money, uh, lost his ships. Uh, He actually found these friezes with traces of color still extant on them, because all sculpture in ancient Greece was colored and very colorful. But he actually had them washed with salt water from the sea every day of the journey from Greece to uh, the UK, to Britain. So that that was destructive for these sculptures as well in their present form. Another very interesting story I would like to share with you is it comes from a a British antiquarian in uh, 1819, who actually was uh, passing by the village of uh, Eleusis, Eleusis uh, where the ancient Eleusinian mysteries were once held. So there he found that the local inhabitants, the Greek inhabitants, who were of course Christian, uh, they had a statue of uh, Demeter, of the goddess Demeter, an ancient statue probably found in the vicinity of the temple of Eleusis. And each year they would bury this statue up to its neck in manure, uh, light um, a little sandalier on it. They called Saint Demeter and they had the dances around it so as uh, Saint Demeter, as they called her, would bless their crops. This antiquarian actually wanted to buy the statue, uh, so he uh, came in contact with the Turkish authorities and they told him, sure, yeah, <laughs> if you pay the price, it's yours. But the people were very reluctant, even though the uh, Turkish authorities said, okay, give him the statue, because they thought this would, make, um, would, would cause their crops to wither. It was like their, uh, their fetish, their um, totem thing. Uh, in, that, in that sense, uh, even though they were Christians, they did use this ancient Greek statue as a totem of uh, fertility for their crops. So it was uh, with a lot of uh, pain uh, and with a lot of trouble uh, that this British antiquarian had to go into. He employed the help of the local priest and certain monks uh, who were willing to dig out the statue because the rest of the villagers were afraid that if they touched the statue they would die. Hefty fees were paid to the workers and this statue found its way eventually into into Britain. And I think think, uh, it is still extant today in the uh, Um, British Museum in a staircase, but it does have all the uh, signs of uh, weathering and, um, let's say, uh, erosion from being subjected to this yearly ritual. So Greece, again, there are numerous stories. If you take the trouble to look into um, the literature from the 19th century, Uh, you know, travel literature, Uh, you find all sorts of very funny stories from French antiquarians. For instance, there's a French antiquarian in Ephesus who pays uh, to buy certain Greek friezes there, but um, he only has permission to take them down. Uh, In his permission from the sultan, he does not have any written permission so that he can take them with him. So the Turkish aga, the uh, lower-ranking official, because he thought that the Frenchman was onto something and these marble sculptures were pretty much valuable, he actually stole those from the French guy, uh, took them back to his place, and, of course, these are missing so uh, the uh, archaeological and historical damage done by all those amateur archaeologists, to use a modern term, but you know they were the archaeologists of the time, uh, it w- was um, immense. I mean, all sorts of artifacts have been looted and found their way into private collections without any historical context, and, and it's it's really one of the greater tragedies of the science of archaeology that. You know, as it was uh, in its birth, it was a crude birth for archaeology. Let's put it that way
0: before asking you about the role of the Philines who supported the Greek cause of the war of independence from the Ottoman rule, could we see into the roots of the phileines movement? Ah uh,
1: yes, the uh, movement of the Philalines actually. Was born out of, let's say, two basic sentiments that were uh, going around Europe, mostly of uh, Western or Northern European origin, who, in one way or another, supported the Greek co- the, the Greek cause of independence. Uh, on the one hand, in the uh, 19th century, you have uh, classicism being. Um, uh, in a, uh, in quite a bloom, and on the other hand, you have Romanticism as a literary and uh, a literary movement and a movement in the arts. So these two combined, Classicism and Romanticism, found their perfect expression in the struggle for independence of the Greeks because the Greeks, to the, to the mind of the European classicists, they were the apex of uh, perfection, the, uh, let's say, the matrix and the birthplace of all that was um, beautiful and good in European culture, uh, hence the uh, neoclassical architectural style and all sculpture. All if, uh, if you look at British sculpture, for instance, from the 19th century, you can't miss the uh, references and the, the imitation of classical Greece. So, these classicists wondered, who really adored Greek culture, adored, uh, imagined and wondered, where are the Greeks today? And at the same time, uh, the Romantics uh, were really touched by the whole c- concept of once noble people striving uh, to, for its independence uh, against a brutal and theocratic state, as was uh, the Ottoman Empire considered in his day. So the uh, Philhellenism, as a sentiment did arise out of these uh, let's say um, intellectual movements and in a sense that was very beneficiary for Greece and for the Greek cause and at the same time it was a bit disastrous because it was very beneficiary because it uh, turned a lot of attention uh, to uh, and public opinion was in favor of uh, the Greek struggle of for independence, but at the same time, it did, uh, let's say, intervene with the uh, with evolution, culture, and civilization in Greece, and tried to implement, let's say, um, a restoration of classical antiquity. Even though, you know, uh, it was the nineteenth century, so. One can see it in many ways, and a lot of arguments can be made in favor or against that, but uh, in general, I think, yeah, it was classicism and romanticism combined that made uh, Greece the ideal canvas for expressing those idealistic views.
0: Despite that most European empires and governments were hostile to the Greek War of Independence, they even collaborated with the Ottoman Empire against the Greek revolutionaries, After the successes of the Greek heroes, and with the imminent formation of the modern Greek state, they became interested in controlling Greece by imposing a series of kings who were not Greeks. Who were really the legitimate rulers of Greece?
1: Great question. I think I will answer it with an excerpt from uh, a letter Lord Byron, the renowned uh, Philelin, wrote a little bit before the revolution. I think it was in 1819. uh, And he wrote this in um, a Catholic convent in Athens, where he was staying at the time, where he actually writes that Greece can be allowed to be autonomous and prosperous and have all the goods that our colonies have. But Greece can never be allowed to be free because, he says in the Romantic vein, that if Greece is ever truly free, all other European kingdoms will be forced to resume their former barbarism. Although this is quite a, let's say, romantically phrased thing, uh, it does imply that uh, the purpose of the Philelines was not, to create a truly free and independent kingdom of Greece at the time, but actually to create, let's say, a colony, uh, a subsidiary kingdom that would allow them access to the Mediterranean. They would actually get the best part of the Ottoman Empire. Concerning kings, uh, now the Greeks themselves, as we have said, they identified as Romans. Um, not Byzantines, but Romans. The term Byzantine is a whole different thought, Let's not get to, into that right now. So uh, the Greeks themselves, in the first national assembly, uh, they felt that uh, the lineage of the Roman kings should continue where it had been left off in 1453. So the first national assembly actually wanted to bring, as the first king of Greece, the the heir of the Paleologos dynasty, uh, the last last Roman emperor, Constantine the 11th of the House of Paleologos. The uh, First National Assembly did send a committee to look for any descendants of that uh, Roman ruler. Unfortunately, uh, the last of the uh, Paleologos line had died in uh, 1660, I think, in the Barbados island, uh, Ferdinando Paleologos, and his tomb is still ex- extant today in the island uh, in the Barbados. It's uncertain for how he had ended up uh, there. Unfortunately, the line of the, the of the last uh, emperor had uh, been totally lost. Um, 200 years uh, before the first National Assembly. So that's why, at first, uh, King Otto of Bavaria was chosen, with, uh, of course, the approval of Britain and France and the big forces. And King Otto actually had a very loose claim on the Byzantine throne because. Uh, going back to uh, medieval times, to the ninth century, Princess Theano of Rome had married Otto the First of the Germans. So there was a very, very loose, uh, <laughs> let's say, li- uh, connection of bloodlines. But. Uh, King God of Bavaria was chosen. And as uh, Theodoros Kolokotronis, the general of the Greek Revolution, says, who was a a big supporter of the king, he says, our king tries very hard and he loves his people and he tries to imitate our customs a lot, so stand by him. (laughs) So Kolokotronis does have this, um, okay, him a break, he's he's really trying. That's why also these Bavarian kings at first actually even dressed as Greeks, even though they were definitely not Greeks. Of course, uh, there was a coup against uh, King uh, Otto, because King Otto was uh, opposed to uh, the Greeks continuing the fight for independence after uh, 1832, uh, who uh, the Greeks want to press on the fight and continue taking on lands in uh, Hellespont in Constantinople, but this was against British actual interests, political interests of the time. So there was, let's say, a coup against him and he was forced to flee back into Bavaria and that's where uh, that king ended. Uh, But he was succeeded by um, the uh, George I, King George I from the House of Glücksburg, who were actually Danish royalty and very interesting side note. In that period, between King Otto and King uh, George I, there were many candidates for the throne, and one of the potential candidates was even uh, Sir Edward Bulver-Lytton, who was uh, then the uh, general secretary of the colonial uh, government of Britain in India. Uh, Bulver-Lytton is the author of Zanoni and the Coming Race. Uh, He was a Rosicrucian, um, Freemason, quite an esoteric writer, and he wrote this amongst many other books, the Coming Race, the uh, book that you know sets the precedent for uh, the real energy and uh, super civilization in the, the hollow earth and all that, um, which the Nazis many, many years later took for uh, took as actual history, even though it was just a novel. So there was this little time frame that did that guy, that that great writer, could have been King of Greece. Of course he declined and we ended up with uh, George uh, the first and the house of Glücksburg until the expulsion of the king.
0: Yes, but didn't we have our own princes like the Ypsilandis brothers or unfortunately Ioannis Kapodistrias was assassinated but if it was the norm at that time to have a king, couldn't we have a Greek king?
1: Unfortunately, unfortunately no Greek as in Roman bloodlines uh, survived with A good claim on the throne, meaning that all the noble Roman families, whoever had survived, did not have the political influence or the money to have such a claim. For instance, Ioannis Kapodistus, the first governor of Greece and possibly the only decent politician Greece ever had. Prince Ipsilandis, again, he was of a noble uh, line, but uh, his titles were Russian. In Greece at the time, even the political parties, they were called the the French party, the Russian party and the British party. So it was actually uh, when Greece was liberated, it was heavily under the yoke of the big forces and the political influences. Even political parties were basically uh, supporters of foreign forces. So it was actually a power play between uh, England, France, and Russia, mostly, who would be the, let's say, patron of this newly formed kingdom of Greece. Because, just as Lord Byron said, Greece has never actually been free. It has been autonomous, but always tied up to the um, greater uh, chariot, let's say, the great chariot of interest of the European uh, forces who did I in fact, vouchsafe for our liberation. I mean, the Kingdom of Greece was recognized by the, um, how was it called, a protocol of independence signed in London. Even uh, our declaration of independence was not signed, was not officially recognized or signed in Greece. It was signed in London. So you can understand how much modern Greek history is dependent on the political whims of the uh, forces that in the 19th century were ruling the world. That's why no Greek royalty or nobility ever had a hope to participate because our nobility had been dismantled uh, after the fall of Constantinople, basically, and let's say in the 1490s, uh, the last vestiges of uh, Greek nobility had been totally eradicated or assimilated into foreign nobility. As we said, the Stratioti and the uh, fighting nobles and the knights who went to Venice or abroad, they uh, eventually obtained titles there and so remained there. So Greece was a country without nobility. Therefore, open to the taking for uh, any contenders.
0: (laughs) I understand my following question should involve and seek answers from historians, primarily focused on political and sociological analysis. Just to summarize your previous uh, historical remarks of uh, the governance of the modern Greek state after the end of the War of Independence, what could be a balanced approach to the interventions of the big powers in the rule of Greece from a purely historic perspective, both positive and negative effects?
1: well uh, it is definitely a complex issue I mean I could I couldn't uh, you know fully do it justice in a few words but I would say that uh, the intervention of the big powers was Crucial. I don't think uh, Greece, uh, the fight the fight for independence in 1821, could have uh, resulted in something uh, positive for Greece without the intervention of the great, the big powers. For instance, when uh, General uh, Marshal uh, Maison comes to the Peloponnese with the French forces. He takes all the fortresses, one after the other, effortlessly with the might of the French army and, uh, you know, the organization. Also, it was the French who first built the roads in the Peloponnese because, you know, for the communications of the army. So the uh, contribution of the Europeans to the cause has been invaluable. And on the other hand, you know, uh, there's nothing, no such thing as a free meal, as they say in life. So whenever uh, you have an invaluable contribution from someone, he will eventually need something in return. That's, that's I, I think, what, in essence, Greece traded. The, the success of the cause of independence, we traded that off for a, a diminished level of freedom. At that point, it was preferably to be, it was more preferable to be uh, subservient, let's say, to the Europeans than full-time slaves to the Ottomans. So it was uh, a choice between these two things.
0: <laughs> yes, but we must not forget that the final and most crucial battle of the War of Independence was given and won in Viotia by Prince Ypsilanti, not by the French, not by the British. I understand that what you mean by your summary was that we needed to have stability after the end of the War of Independence. Because if as Greeks we were completely alone, we wouldn't have secured the stability post the War of Independence. One final question, Marius. If we look into the big picture of the Greek history, we suffered historical discontinuations, those of the Roman occupation, the Byzantine Empire, and the Ottoman occupation. What had been the impact of classicism and that of philhellenism in the 19th century to the post-war of independence Greece?
1: Yeah, well, that's that's also a very good point, and it has to do with our modern identity as Greece. I mean, throughout, uh, you know, the, the general area of Greece. I mean, if we're talking about antiquity, uh, Greece was not just this geographical area that we call Greece today. It was all of Asia Minor, Anatolia, Syria, Mesopotamia, uh, uh, so the south of Italy, uh, even Spain. So. All these Greeks with these successive invasions, uh, let's say, as a people, the Greeks integrated and evolved. They evolved from classical Greeks into um, uh, Roman Greeks, Greco Roman citizens in that sense. And of course, it has always, uh, it uh, this sort of identity depends on the area, on the region, uh, these Greek populations exist. For instance, you know, today in Syria, there are, uh, there's a minority of, I think, about uh, 500,000 people who identify as Rum, uh, and they are Christian Orthodox, and they identify as descendants of the Selefkid Empire, of the Macedonians. So the idea of that modern Greeks are the direct descendants of, Classical Greeks, of uh, the direct descendants of Plato and Aristotle and King Leonidas, was put to the forefront. Not that it is a wrong idea. Not I mean that it is not a you know, let's say historical or genetical fact or anything like that. But um, this idea of classicism does not take into account everything between the, everything that transpired all the ages. So it totally uh, erases out of the, the picture of uh, national identity of. Self-perception of a people, let's say cultural identity, uh, refuses us our entire Middle Ages in that sense. This, to my mind, has created a bit of an identity gap uh, for the modern Greeks. And at the same time, all these years and all these occupations that Greeks felt that they were under the yoke of a foreign master has given modern Greeks their... uh, distaste for authority and their rebellious nature. I mean uh, it has been quite quite a long time when we're talking centuries here that the Greeks were really fending for themselves and being truly free. So all these long centuries of having a master uh, has made us really averse to authority I think as a, in our collective unconscious if you will. <laughs>
0: This was something we have already discussed in our previous conversation, especially for the various gaps in our culture, what the effect, for example, of the Roman Empire has been to the Greeks. I understand that any nation that has been occupied for such long times by different people might have not felt that they have been the most uh, productive especially after the classicism and romantic era of uh, Europe, fascism and uh, nationalism took over. And the Greeks have been overlooked by the Germans of those times and by the Italians of those times as if Greeks were unworthy of their heritage, of their cultural heritage, which is an unfair Uh, way of analyzing the historical events. Thank you once again, Maria, for another interesting discussion at the Global Greek Influence podcast. I'm sure that this year many discussions around the globe will enrich the bicentennial celebration since the outbreak of the Greek Revolution of 1821 and the war of independence against the Ottoman Empire and what it means for us today and our future.
1: Thank you very much. It has been a pleasure as always and keep up the good work.
0: Thank you, Maria. And I would like also to thank all of you who are following us and listen to our interesting conversations. To listen to more interesting guests and a unique perspective into current and timeless matters, please subscribe, like, and leave your comments to the Global Greek Influence Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Angora FM, Google Podcasts, and four more podcasting platforms, as well as to the podcast's Twitter and Facebook accounts. Stay tuned for another interesting discussion next Sunday.